You're listening to Nearly Numinous, a podcast all about the religious side of life. Every week we chat about different religions, spiritualities, and other beliefs. We do roundtable discussions, deep dives into histories and religious studies theories, and interview different religious leaders or practitioners. For full transcripts and more information on each episode, you can find us at nearlynuminous.ca. episode on season one of the hundred if you haven't listened to our first episode then pause this episode right now and go back and listen to it and while you're at it also just watch the first season of the 100 if you if you haven't seen it already in this first episode we give a little bit more of an intro into the the show in in the first episode you can find this past episode anywhere that you listen to podcasts or on our website nearlynuminous.ca but today we're going to be covering what we didn't cover last time, the three main communities of people that the show focuses on in the first season. First, we're starting with the sky people, then we'll get to the hundred, and finally the grounders. Some of the themes that will probably pop up today will be nature and group cohesion. But let us know if you can identify any other running themes throughout this episode and season one. one we're gonna get into is the sky people like Jacqueline said the show has a few different main communities that it focuses on and the first one we're going to talk about is the sky people aka the people who live on the ark so the ark is made up of international space stations from different countries but it kind of seems like there are no religions from these countries that have survived in space There are some fan theories for why this may be, which is that many of the people in these space stations were scientists and engineers, and so they may have mostly been atheists. Uh, We know it's not a true stereotype, but that it is one, so it would make sense that the writers assumed it and wrote it into a TV show, possibly. And even though no one explicitly practices a traditional religion, there are some brief references to Abrahamic monotheism. So first, one of the references is to whether or not there is a forgiving God that will forgive the sky people for the terrible things they have to do to survive. Um, I think it was Jaha, was it Jaha who said, we hope in a God who forgives? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. He's one of the more spiritual people in the show. And then Cain, another character, said he would bring the Ark down to, like, a cosmic Adam and Eve, meaning he would float everyone he needed to until the very last two, if that's what would keep everybody safe. Yeah, and then I think there's, of course, the kind of main overarching allusion to Noah's Ark, um, obviously because the ship itself is called the Ark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Much like in the story of Noah's Ark, the world is being washed out uh, via, you know, a flood or a nuclear war. And the Ark carries people that will repopulate the Earth when they are able to return. So this is also uh, similar to like the narrative of the Left Behind series, but that one is a bit more of a rapture 
So, okay, before we like recorded this, we, we were discussing like, is this a rapture or is this different? Because uh, much like the rapture, like the individuals got to go up to uh, the sky, quote unquote. Um, I say the sky to make the link between the TV show. <laughs> and they got, they watched the destruction of the earth. Um, and they were almost like the people who were raptured. They were the people who were saved. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of that illusion, but much like in the story of Noah's Ark, rather than the traditional rapture foretelling, uh, they actually get to return to the earth. So the earth is seen as almost like the heavenly space rather than uh, actual heaven, like the afterlife, etc. Um, so it's, it's less of a focus as well. Um, and this is kind of where it deviates from more traditional religious retellings is, you know, there's not a focus on God or heaven at all in their language, but rather it's a focus on returning to the ground. So they kind of give that religious language and these religious themes to this return to the ground. So when we get into this kind of theme of returning to the ground as well, it's really interesting because we can get more into the kind of funeral language that they use as well. So uh, when people die on the ship, they their bodies actually are sent out Floating? What is that called again? I'm blanking. Um, they float. Floating. They they are floated, uh, and that's almost a kind of they they fall out of the ship towards the ground as well. Um, and so there's a quote that they actually say when any anybody dies, and it's also later repurposed to function similarly for life on the ground. And the quote is: "In peace, may you leave this shore. In love, may you find the next." safe passage on your travels until our final journey to the ground. May we meet again. Jaha says something weird about um, like committing them to the deep, I think after like the big calling. And I think the deep would just, we, we were wondering what, well, I was wondering what the deep was. And then Rachel said mm. um, that it might just be like deep outer space type thing, but they also very much yeah, still fall I to think the ground. So. Jaha's got yeah. a lot of stuff going on in his head that make a lot of sense to him and not a lot of sense to anybody else. <laughs> I think that's his whole yeah. thing though. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Have you it's season two, right? Where he gets all kind of culty. Yeah. Have you watched that stuff? I've only seen so maybe fun. like half of it. Not quite. I don't think I've seen Ooh, even half yeah, of it. Yeah, he's a very I'm like not yeah. as caught up as the other two on this. He's a very interesting and frustrating character. Okay, so another instance where we're kind of like talking about returning to the ground on the Ark is with this thing called the Eden Tree and the watering ceremony. So this is kind of the only thing that appears like a traditional religion on the Earth. Um, it's in the watering ceremony of the Eden Tree. So on the Ark, there's a small sapling that they brought with them and they've been keeping alive. But since water is scarce, people choose to donate some of their ration to keep the tree alive. And the idea is that they'll plant this tree once they return to the ground. Um, is this the only plant? This can't be the only plant they have up there. Or is this just this one tree very symbolic? I think they must have plants like of in their like for food that they that they grow. Yeah. But I think this is the only one that doesn't mm, necessarily yeah. serve a direct purpose. We never see any of those two-by-two two animals yeah. either. Like, where's the two snakes? Where's the two elephants? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Like, were they just going to cut their losses with the animals? Like, did they not bring any up there? I don't think so. I think it's just them. Them and some, like, algae. I think they eat a lot of algae stuff. It's a very human-centered approach what, to repopulating the Earth. What I'm thinking maybe is the Ark was um, flown before the the war happened, and so they weren't planning oh. on it being, like, a rescue ship uh, and a repopulating ship. But then all of a sudden, because the world blew up, they were like, all right, this is our new mission. Anyway, they have animals on the earth. <laughs> yeah. They have two-headed deer. Those are pretty cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, cool's a word for it. Terrifying. Yeah, so uh, they probably have other uh, plants on ship, but this this one tree, the Eden tree, is very symbolic and important to um, a certain subset of people on the ark. So it pretty much serves as a symbol for the people of like salvation and faith that one day they will return to the ground. And so during one watering ceremony, somebody says, as the earth will one day provide for us, so we provide for the earth. So there's this really interesting relationship that's developed on the arc between humanity and nature, where they're both taking care of each other. Where if you're looking at the past, um, humanity's past on the show, it's really humanity destroying nature. So it's kind of like they tried to flip the script on the arc and they're like, we're going to make things different this time. Um, maybe I'm reading into that too much, but that's what I hope for. No, I think that's what they were trying to do. Um, I'm... Thinking to the future seasons, though, and I'm wondering how successful yeah. they actually were in doing that. Because they certainly tried, but they they didn't always value nature as much as... Or particular people didn't maybe value nature as much as yeah. one would have hoped. And I mean, though. when the hundred get to the ground, they see that nature did pretty well without them. So uh, that's, that's one of the things I like about the show. Yeah. It uh, shows that you know humans we don't need you we're just we're gonna thrive and survive ourselves that's the earth speaking by the way so Cain, we've mentioned him before he's one of the leaders on the ark he used to be this thing called a tree tender and his mother is the leader of this group in charge of the eden tree and we see on the show that he apparently hasn't watered the tree in a while but he still has some sympathy for the ceremony a bystander says to him one time, that's a waste of water uh, regarding the watering of the Eden tree. And he says, not to them. So kind of shows that he still has a respect and an understanding of the importance of this semi-religious ritual on the ark. And then after a horrific event, he goes to water the tree. Uh, we're thinking probably is a way to atone for his sins this tree can function maybe as I don't know somebody you can go to to ask for forgiveness like it's sort of a symbol of where am I going with this I think it could maybe be connected in like asking asking yeah. the earth for forgiveness too like as an extension um it's like where Cain goes for forgiveness essentially yeah. is, is nature which is kind of interesting whereas Jaha mm -hmm. thinks immediately of this god figure 
Yeah, that's kind of what I was going for. Thank you, Jacqueline. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then, um, spoiler, uh, Kane's mother dies, and eventually Kane tends it, and he plants it when he arrives on the ground, which is really interesting because he does it privately without ceremony and without including any of the others who may have watered the plant and who may have also wanted to be there for the planting so i would have been so pissed if i was one of the waterers i would have too in his defense though like very few people actually made it back sorry i'm like talking to the back mm-hmm. of my mic uh very few people actually made it down to the earth so i wonder if mm-hmm. like, maybe mm-hmm. none of the um tree tenders made it yeah maybe he was the last one I'm just, I'm being, I'm trying Maybe to defend so. him, but honestly, there's yeah. probably at least a few. <laughs> yeah, I think for him, um, by that point, it probably became, because his mother was, like, the the leader of this, of this group at the time, and so I think, I think maybe it also just became a way of, like, a, a burial that he could kind of, like, yeah. maybe it was more for her than, than about the tree. Okay, so now we'll yeah. talk about the hundred, so the next community the Ark sent the hundred down to determine whether or not the ground was survivable. And when they stepped out of the dropship for the first time, the hundred discovered that they've landed in the middle of a lush green forest compared to the monochrome sterile environment that they grew up in on the spaceship. The earth seems like utopia. However, the hundred discover upon their return that the earth, their very own Eden is not as perfect as they thought it would be. There's acid fog, grotesquely mutated animals, unfamiliar plant life, and food sources. What's more is that they discover they aren't alone. And we'll get to the grounders in a bit. We don't see any obvious signs of spirituality with the hundred like we do with the sky people. But as Steph mentioned before, we do see the framing of Earth as a sort of Eden or heaven for the survivors of the Ark and the hundred. When we were looking at the Ark, we saw that the sky people thought of Earth as a place of possibility or utopia. So the people in the Ark saw the Ark as a way of saving the human race, but their hope is that eventually they can return to the ground as a sort of final salvation. So over time, the Earth has become a sort of heaven, a reversal of the view of heaven as being up in the sky. In our world, we often hear the sky is the limit or reach for the stars, and space is often seen as being limitless. But Earth here is being portrayed as having endless possibilities. So the opposite of what a lot of these these phrases that we're used to saying say. Um, And maybe this is a naive hope, um, but that's kind of what they were thinking when they were on the Ark. At one point, one of our main characters, Clark, is having a discussion with her friend um, who she had a disagreement with when she was on the Ark. Or not a disagreement. Yeah, it's a little bit more disagreement. A conflict? I don't want to, like, give it away, but I guess, okay. Uh, At one point, our main character, Clark, is having a discussion with Jaha's son, one of her uh, previous friends from the Ark that she had a major conflict with. And he, his name's Wells, Wells says, we're going to be friends again. And Clark says, you got my dad killed. Not possible. So, like, obviously, like, a very large conflict. And then Wells says, this is Earth, Clark. Anything is possible. And that that phrase, like, we're on Earth, anything is possible, is something that comes up again and, and again, with, uh, especially with 100 when they first come down to Earth in this first season. And so, yeah, just uh, very much 
earth is seen as just having a limitless possibility, which they soon learn is not actually the case. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to the grounders? Unless anybody has any more points about the 100. Nah, there's not much to say about them in the first season, at least to do with religion and spirituality. Yeah, I think from my perspective anyway, I think they're, first off, they're very young, which mm-hmm. I think definitely plays into it. But then second, they're they're in a survival mode almost where I would argue that when you're in that sort of position, you rarely have time to think about like what is beyond your basic needs, right? Yeah. So I think, and and I do believe we see a little bit more um, coming from them like later seasons, um, but definitely yeah. in the first season. It, They're also like- isolated from their home community where they, you know, may have been introduced to religion and spirituality but like you said they're in this survival mode where they're cut off from their original culture and uh i think yeah we do see a little bit more of it as the show goes on because they do develop a bigger sense of community Mm -hmm. that definitely fosters a growth in their culture yeah well we can definitely talk about the grounders though because i think there's a lot there from my perspective anyway Mm -hmm. So the idea of Earth as a place of possibility, as Jacqueline was just mentioning, is quickly abandoned when the 100 discover that there are other people on the Earth. Uh, so the whereas the 100 have this reverence for nature, um, mostly because they just haven't been around it for their entire life, um, they also, they, they meet these, or they don't meet, um, they come across these other people. <laughs> Uh, they're not even sure if they're Come people at first. Come across in a not friendly way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and because they don't see them having the same reverence for nature and the same practices and just general day-to-day lifestyle as them, they uh, quickly other them and see them as being, quote-unquote, less than. So in season one, we don't see much about the grounders. Um And this is mostly because they're kind of framed as, again, the other, um, and even as quote-unquote savages in comparison to the civilized sky people. Um, Though we do see later on that there are actually even worse enemies out in the world, and maybe they were just, you know, responding to a threat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Logically. So one of obviously coming out of what I was just saying, uh, one of the main themes that we can kind of go off and just discuss is the idea of indigeneity versus, you know, uh, like a colonizer or um, newcomers to an area who kind of see themselves as the only people and therefore are the better people. Um, I say that with a specific tone, obviously. (laughs) So as the 100 seek to move outside their camp, um, they quickly discover that they're not alone. Again, the grounders. Uh, And without knowing it, they're invading and harming the people that already live there. And obviously the grounders are quite upset because there's this unknown threat to them now coming into their land. They don't know who these people are. um, And frankly, they are an actual threat, not like even a perceived threat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. so they end up having pretty advanced weaponry. Um, well, more more advanced than what I think the 100 would have 
perceived them to have. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it became a threat to the 100 as well. Um, in this season, like in the first season, which is what we're kind of more specifically talking about, um, obviously, perceptions change throughout the series. But in the first season, we see very, very little from the perspective of the grounders. So it's really presented in a very big us versus them perspective. Part of this, uh, which I think is, this is something that I think is really well done in the 100. Um, the 100. Do we decide what we're calling it? It's the 100. The 100. Yeah. Because when they say previously on the, they always say the 100. So. Question. This is a side tangent. Uh, do you think that's like American versus Canadian language though? Uh, we just like to be specific with our numbers here in Canada. Right? Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure like 100 is more of an American mm. thing. 100 is maybe more of like a British English quote. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but no, so so one thing that I really appreciate about the 100, the 100, you know, if you're an American listener, you can get mad if we call it the 100, but no, whatever. Um, <laughs> but everything was done the the visuals like the cinematography the lighting the visuals were really well done especially for like a cw tv show Mm -hmm. um in my opinion anyway Mm -hmm. Uh, like some people might get mad people love the cw um but you know it's a significant step up from like 90210 remake um just to throw an example out there i mean (laughs) i haven't watched 90210 recently um within the last year um but yeah so (laughs) Uh, some of the things I think all of us noticed a few examples of how they really othered the grounders visually. I don't know if you guys want to share some of your insights with the class. Yeah, so something that I noticed um, right away with with the grounders, the first grounders that we meet um, tend to wear a lot of masks, and it instantly reminded me of kind of Lord of, Lord of the Rings and how the costuming in Lord of the Rings there was through costuming was how this distinction between uh, the orcs and the elves, say, um, was made apparent. And very often in Lord of the Rings, it would be through masks. And it's the same thing in the hundred. Um, these these first grounders we meet wear masks a lot, which uh, hide their faces and then makes it really easy to overlook their humanity. Um, and it, yeah, it can at times give them the effect of not being human and just kind of these really scary monsters, especially when um, the first, the first, grounders that we meet are are scared and are attacking the hundred and so they kind of come up come across in this this way where their humanity isn't as apparent as it will be in say season two yeah and then on the flip side of that the show kind of tries to emphasize the humanity of the hundred like they firstly by like making them look and dress a lot like we do today so like they have sort of you know i'm using air quotes here regular clothing um you know relatively clean faces they don't really wear masks or war paint or anything like the grounders do um and i think this is like sort of supposed to show that they're supposedly not hiding anything um Mm -hmm. unlike the grounders are in their minds maybe Mm mm-hmm I think uh, kind of going off of that as well, even when you do see maybe even a slight shred of humanity, like, oh, they have skin and blood. Uh, (laughs) It's usually paired with like uh, really bad scars and tattoos. Um, And so I think when you naturally see someone very strong covered in scars, you think of, you know, someone who's been in a lot of battle. They've killed a lot of people. They must be these terrible 
again, using the term quote unquote savage and especially even like their horses and like the animals that they use uh, usually have like very scary features on them, like giant tumors and stuff. And so all of that is very warlike. Um, and I think too, there's that portrayal. And I think we often do this in like Western media that when there is a war, the people who are fighting the war are uncivilized. The people who are stepping back in their community with their walls up, uh, they're not covered in scars and, you know, tattoos and stuff. They're civilized. Um, which is very interesting because they're both fighting the war. Uh, I don't understand how that imagery passes, um, but it, it's it's very common to see that even when you watch like contemporary war movies, usually like the Americans, the British are usually portrayed as being like strategic, like they're sitting in front of their maps, mm-hmm. they're sitting in front of their, mm-hmm. you know, in their groups coming up with a strategy, whereas the other people are just like, they're hiding in the bushes and they're throwing spears. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because they have no strategy. Yeah. Um, part of all of that as well. Um, and I think it's not necessarily done visually in the 100, but um, like I was just saying, with any kind of war situation, um, when you're looking at it from the perspective of one group, so especially in these like war movies that I was just talking about with like the Westerners, like the Americans and British, et cetera. Um, but also with the 100, they're always framed as being the good guys. Um, and that's, I think primarily just because of the perspective that's shown. And I think this is what's really done in the 100, um, is that you only ever see, again, you never see the other side sitting down making strategy. Um, you only ever see them attacking. And obviously, if you only ever see one group attacking, you think that they're the bad people. Because like, oh, well, they just attack, 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 nothing more. Um, you don't actually see like their perspective. Uh, you don't see their strategy. You don't see what's going on in their communities, right? Um, I think another thing to note about the way that the kind of us versus them mentality is shown is through just the wall that's put up. Um and so I think, you know, we're not we're not strangers to wall rhetoric anymore. No. Uh, that's pretty common these days. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, too, because Bellamy actually even says uh, that the fear of the grounders is what's building the wall. Um, so, again, it's that like us versus them mentality. I think it's interesting because it sounds like Bellamy's kind of like getting it a little bit, <laughs> but also not. Anyway, you know what I mean. (laughs) Watching that scene in like 2021 post-Trump was really, it it hit different than pre-Trump. It was very interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, it does, Bellamy is kind of, um, I'll say he's kind of like scary and impulsive in the earlier seasons. And he bases a lot of his actions around fear and violence. And that I can, like, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I can, I really like how if you stick with the later seasons, Bellamy grows as a person. Um, But in this first season, he kind of does seem like a 22nd century Trump, just a little bit. 
Just a little bit sometimes. Yeah. All right. Just to wrap up the section on the grounders as well. Um, like like we've already said, in later seasons, you actually get to hear and see a lot more from the grounders. Um, and it does a little bit better at, you know, I think pointing out the fact that the 100 is not the victim of the grounders attacks, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so in season two specifically, like you, you, it really opens up to the perspective of the grounders and you hear a lot more about, uh, the themes of colonization, survival and gayness, which, which we love to see. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot more gayness in season two. (laughs) Alrighty. So, um, I promised we'd talk about this earlier. Let's talk about it now. Group cohesion. Woo. Let's go. So... (laughs) Or lack thereof. (laughs) Or lack thereof. So uh, throughout the show, there's kind of this recurring theme of like constructing group identity and social cohesion. First on the arc, there's like the different space stations that developed a group identity so that they could live together well in space. Then when the hundred go to Earth, they need to figure out how they'll live together on the ground. Um... And then as alliances are made in future seasons of the show, group identities continually have to change and adapt accordingly. So the kind of in-group and out-group switch up a lot. So in religious studies, religion is sometimes defined as something that helps to establish group identity and promote group cohesion. This is called... That sounds like a definition I read in second year. (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you've ever taken a religious studies like intro or theory class you've heard this before so this is called a functional definition because it considers how a religion functions rather than focusing on a religion's aspects like the supernatural figures like gods etc so in the definition of religion by emile durkheim who is a huge victim figure in the world of religious studies um group identity forms around a common symbol or value which he calls a totem so throughout the show the groups are constantly reformulating and redeveloping these totems or shared values so that they can better live together as a community so an example of this maybe uh like more contemporary would be if we look at how, say, Canadian identity or American identity is kind of developed in the stories that that we tell. And so this is especially relevant as uh, for us Canadians, it was just recently Canada Day and there was big debate about um, should we even be celebrating Canada Day? What does Canada, what does Canada Day mean and what even is Canada? And so um, as we know from Canadian history, um, very often, say, in our, our education through school, dark parts of our history are conveniently left out to kind of continually uh, re- like construct this, this history that we can be proud of so that on Canada Day, we can, you know, wave our Canada flags um, proudly, watch the fireworks proudly, all that sort of thing. So things may be focused on like multiculturalism or in the States, especially um, the idea of freedom. But um, so in these cases, these ideas, multiculturalism and freedom, 
if you're linking it to Emil Durkheim, they can be kind of seen as totems or shared values, and they function to bring people of different backgrounds together so that they can live together. And of course, that is not always successful. Um, it doesn't always tell the whole story, as we, especially this last year with uh, the events in Canada, have been have been reflecting on. Uh, but that's a that's another conversation. But looking back at the arc, we see these functional totems in the values highlighted in what they call Unity Day. So Unity Day is a holiday um, for when the arc celebrates when the various space stations join together to create what they call the arc. So children do a pageant that tells a very simplified version of the story. And there's a lot of emphasis on unity and harmony. By the time, you, by the time Unity Day is celebrated in the show, the hundred are already on the ground and have finally made video contact. And so they can see a live stream of the ceremony, but they're not like totally paying attention to it because they're teenagers. And um, they also are drinking some alcohol, I believe, and just, you know, just celebrating in other ways. Um, so while the leaders on the arc keep making references to the hundred on the ground and incorporating them in their in-group of like, oh yes, we're, we're celebrating all together. We've made contact with the hundred. They're, you know, a uh, symbol that, um, Earth is habitable, we're saved, blah, blah, blah. The hundred aren't really interested. And this has a lot to do with what we talked about previously. It's just about how they're pretty still pissed off at the Ark for sending them to the ground to die. <laughs> and also, I think it also has to do with this kind of shift of totem. Because um, even though on the Ark, they, it has now served a purpose of the Ark to see the hundred as a part of their in-group for their own boosting up morale, the hundred, um, they've had to focus on building their own community on earth for their own survival and aren't really interested in hearing the speeches of the leaders that will just send them to die a short while ago, but also don't have any impact on their day-to-day -day life on, on earth. And so uh, it's just kind of interesting because, yeah, like Jaha, for example, is being all serious with the, with the ceremony and, um, and then it kind of like cuts back and forth between the scenes on the ground and like they're not paying attention at all. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Uh, this is a complete aside, but um, maybe not. I think it's interesting how even in this situation, they still have nationalism. Like mm -hmm. why as humanity yeah. are we so obsessed with nationalism? Mm -hmm. Anyway, this has been on my mind because it's obviously it's been Canada Day and of course, it's been a controversial Canada Day. And so, you know, it's just I've been thinking about it of like people just being so obsessed with the idea, because like even in the Unity Day celebration, they do they all like have all the flags of all the different like countries, right, that came together. And then they put it all away because they're like, no, we are now unified under one. And it's like it's still nationalism. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that's my rant. That's super. <laughs> that's super interesting. Like, as we've talked about of like, there's no particular religions that they mention on the arc and there's no partic particular countries that they also mention on the arc and they all speak English. And it's just like this really weird mishmash, but also monolith. That's just like really strange. What would you call yeah. a religion of the arc? Ar archaeology? <laughs> Ar Archeanity? That's a good one. <laughs> Archeanity. <laughs> Archeanity. <laughs> I like that. Oh, man. Sounds too close to anarchy for them to let it pass. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, let's go back to the um, the live stream. I feel like Jacqueline, you have more to say on that, based yeah, on our script uh, notes. <laughs> so one of the few actually watching this the live stream is Finn, and Finn makes a snide comment to Clark about uh, the watered down nature of the story of Unity Day, and um, on the show they don't go into kind of like details about Unity Day other than it's when all the, the space stations came together. But he alludes to the fact that the joining together of the stations didn't actually happen that smoothly. And that this happy little narrative is just something constructed to serve the purposes of the ARC leadership. And he's obviously like cynical to start off with, but then extra cynical because of everything that's going yeah, on. Finn's my um, kind of guy. Yeah. No, he's, <laughs> I really like him in the first, in the first season. Yeah. He's, he's pretty great. Yeah, I, I, my, uh, my opinion of him got completely ruined with the whole love triangle nonsense. Oh my gosh. Spoiler alert for if you haven't seen second season, watch it. I really appreciated him because I myself am a, a pacifist in that I think that it's important to uh, be creative in uh, solving conflict in alternative ways before jumping to shooting people. I thought you were going to get at something with the love triangle with that. I'm like, <laughs> what are you no, going to no, say? No, like to the- no, uh, I try to see if I can link that, but no, not seriously. <laughs> and so at first I like I had a lot of respect for him because he's the main voice of saying, hey, like these are these are people too. Um, yeah, let, let's not just like walk around with their guns and whatever. But then uh, yeah, season two that changes very quickly when he he feels threatened in his identity. Very yeah, and like I don't in, really know how in to... like half an episode. And yeah, in half an episode, he, um, yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, his his worldview, I guess, is kind of maybe threatened or his idea of the future maybe is threatened. I don't know. Not really sure how to frame that without giving it away. But he, uh, he kind of freaks out in a way that he tries to justify later, but I think it's just like, no, like there's no justification of his behavior. So on the arc, we kind of talked about how maybe uh, we use different terms at the time, but how maybe the totems on the arc would be like uh, valuing of the environment and uh, unity, that sort of thing. Um, I'm wondering what you folks think is the totem of the hundred. Do they have any shared value at this point? Is it right now still just a fear of the other that is their main totem? Um are there other things that come to mind when you think about like unifying characteristics? I think a lot of what the hundred focus on, like their shared values as a group is kind of like, this sounds bad, but like fighting other groups, whether it's like the grounders or the mountain men or, you know, the adults uh, from the arc. Um, that I feel like that's kind of how they have really, constructed a group identity it's based on us versus them and the them kind of switches but mm-hmm. that's a the totem is their shared values is in us versus them sort of i think deal. in all fairness um i wouldn't expect anything more or less from a group of teenagers True. would their, their totem <laughs> then maybe be like like us as the kids even like a very specific like us, we're the young ones. I think it's really complicated because it's it's this interesting mix of they're obviously not just the kids anymore, right? Like they've been sent, they now have to survive on their own. 
um, in a more extreme setting than the average 18-year-old or 19-year-old that moves away from home is put into, right? So they're not necessarily the kids. And I think that's why they don't have any shared values because their only shared value is being mad at the arc, mm-hmm. at least in the first little bit. And even that, they can't figure out what part of being mad at the arc they can like join together on. True. And yeah, and also trying to survive, but they can't agree on how they're going to do that either. And so I'd almost say that, like, there's too many smaller groups within it Mm -hmm. for them to have a single community shared identity. And Mm -hmm. I think that that it's just, I mean, in reality, if this was like a real thing that was happening, I think it would be a bit different. It's a CW show. Obviously, they're going to have a bunch of kids be clicky, sleep around, have a bunch of conflict because it's a TV show. So, like, it's hard to say what it would actually be like because I think that they would have a lot more kind of totems or shared values or whatever to kind of bring them together if it was, like, actual real life. Mm. And especially, like, I think a lot of a lot of these things would still happen in real life. Um, there's always going to be conflict and really, especially with teenagers, really petty conflict. But oh, I think, too, like, we're not really sure who all knows each other from before. Um, in this first season, like, there's a couple friendships that we know of. But I think, too, um, there probably would be cliques just even from, because I assume they all went to school together. They all, like, would have known, like, probably, like, at least a couple of the other people their age, you know, like who were sent down there, they probably would have like bonded with them differently or that sort of thing. Well, at the very least, they'd know like the gossip. Yeah. 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 Like we all went to high school. Like my high school was massive and you still knew the gossip from like everybody, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm sure my high school was probably smaller than the entirety of the arc. (laughs) Mm. Or sorry, the arc was smaller than my high school. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking back to um, right when they first get get down to earth Bellamy um, kind of starts chanting this phrase whatever the hell we want and they kind of all start chanting it um but um (laughs) that links to what Steph was saying about well like they all have this kind of general idea of what they want but actually like like well what does whatever the hell we want mean right like just because you're all chanting it um like you're not all gonna do the same thing obviously like that's the point of the phrase and so how do you live together when you're all doing whatever you want and that ends up becoming Mm -hmm. a huge conflict um, because people end up doing whatever the hell they want and um yeah terrible things happen and so then they have to figure out well what do we do with that what sort of ground rules do we have to live together ground rules ah didn't even need to (laughs) good one (laughs) no okay so i have a question Mm -hmm. this is maybe a bit meta But does group identity have to come after chaos and disarray? So Mm. hear me out for a second. So in this TV series, as like a microcosm of the rest of our existence in life, as you do, uh, (laughs) they, they are unable to come together. And they start to a little bit near the end of the season. Like, people start to actually figure out ways of whether it be, like, leadership or some form of, like, democratic system where everybody has a say and a voice or whatever it is. It doesn't seem to happen until they've gone through the, quote-unquote, whatever-the-hell-we-want phase. And I think Mm -hmm. that there's a certain level of 
that narcissism and you know, and I think you can even see this in like how teenagers act in general, right? Like even in like non-TV land, you know, you don't learn how to be empathetic to other people until you see what like being a narcissist has consequences for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is on a scale. Like sometimes you see it, like you learn from other people. Sometimes it happens within your own self. Um, but I'm wondering if you guys think that that, is a thing if like you need conflict before group cohesion and then if you're going to have any sense of religion or spirituality it would have to come after that even so like conflict is step one coming together under group identity would be step two and then some form of spirituality or religion would be step three okay so we're assuming that the group previously is like totally atheist um, before the conflict, no pre preconceived notion, not okay, just not not religious, just not a thing. Yeah, because even like just to clarify too, like in the one hundred, um, they don't have any like foundation of belief system that we know of, right? So like, it's not, and they use terms from like religion, um, maybe for the sake of the TV audience, but you know let's say that in reality they came together they brought some forms of religion in and so they still had like those terms but it wasn't connected to an actual like belief system so like they have kind of nothing as of where they are um not necessarily atheism like they're not anti-religion they're just not not religion not none none just period I think it's not necessary to have conflict, but I think that more people tend to take, um, like these conversations of finding shared values, they tend to take them more seriously when there's higher stakes. Um, but yeah, like that, that's a big claim, but um, that's just kind of like my, my feeling. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the stakes that can often be the motivation um, for group cohesion, um, not sure about spirituality. I think that shared conflict, chaos, trauma is like one of those things that really heightens people's experiences to the point that they can form relationships faster and stronger under duress. Um, so, I think that it's not necessarily maybe to have chaos, but I think that, you know, a shared conflict, like being in the same situation as somebody else in a tough spot is definitely going to make you form a community faster and stronger than if everybody was just, you know, going about their life. Um, and as for the, as for the hundred and like religion and stuff, I mean, if we're assuming that they all came to earth, you know, religiously neutral, um, I think once they're out of survival mode, maybe it might be easier for them to develop religion, but, um, in other cases, religion can just bring people together again, more than it might have if everybody was, you know, neutral and just going about their daily lives. 
Yeah, and I think like this sort of religion, like the functional religion, mm-hmm. uh, it can kind of be like like this this sort of this totem. Eventually, it may start as being uh, something that what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, it may start as something that's profane, but then so profane, so like not particular seen as being um, special, but then through um, the community's valuing out of it, it can kind of like gain this extra sort of like specialness. Um, and then I think the assumption there is that like over the gener- the generations after that, and this is uh, Durkheim's kind of theory, the generations after that, as you become more and more disconnected from the original situation where this object initially gained this importance, then it might like bec- like gain this religious um, value. So I guess an idea would be like, I don't know if, if the 100 had made like some sort of, I'm trying to think of like a statue or something yeah. that they were like, here, when we look at the statue, we will remember this time when we came to the earth and we had to figure out how to live together or something, something. Then maybe in like even 10 years, like this would become a very, very important statue even to the people that like weren't originally there and it might gain this sort of like religious, spiritual kind of feeling. Um, and so I think, I think it's, some things do, do gain importance just like because the community has, has put that importance on them. So I think if spirituality, if we're going with Durkheim's definition of spirituality, then uh, yes, I think it, I think, well, especially like conflict definitely helps with that. And then um, like figuring things out together as a, as a community can strengthen that. Not sure that made sense. Just lots of rambling. No, for sure. My question didn't make sense. So (laughs) none of this episode. What's like, like what is religion, right? Like, yeah. Which definition of religion are you, are you? Uh, looking at for that question going back to the idea of group identity just in general um a lot of the formation of the group identity aside from that whole rambling on discussion we just had (laughs) um is also done through like leadership right uh so if you want to go back in time and and check out an old episode if you haven't heard it yet uh we talk a lot about the idea of charismatic leaders in a past episode and so without kind of we did a whole episode on what is a charismatic leader and probably could have done more. So I can't really define it in like one sentence, but like, you know, the type of person that comes to the top of the group and forms the group (laughs) to put it very simply, the group identity that forms in the 100, I think as well as uh, with the sky people. And I'm sure like with the grounders, but that's maybe in like future seasons, uh, there's definitely the charismatic leader trope, but there's conflict in it as well, which I think, hinders their group cohesion, obviously, um, ends mm-hmm. up in probably a lot more of them dead than there needs to be. But like, let's let's maybe uh, discuss this. Uh, who do you think was the more charismatic leader? Who do you think is the best group leader? Um, who do you think would be mm-hmm. most likely to start a successful cult? Just <laughs> yeah, I think between like in the in the hundred, I think Clark was was the best leader in season one. She has charisma. It's kind of based in also her her knowledge of like healing and stuff that she knows from her mother who is a doctor and so there's there's sort of a knowledge there too um she's up against Bellamy who doesn't necessarily like know a lot of things or like how to work with people or whatever and so I would say especially in season one Bellamy is 
like especially in the first few episodes, Bellamy is quite a charismatic but terrible leader. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think uh, I think Bellamy definitely for me has like the charisma, um, mm-hmm. and I think part mm-hmm. of that is because he pulls on just the leftover trauma from when the Mm -hmm. like other characters were on the arc as well as being sent from the arc um just kind of to earth to maybe die uh and i think if if he was going to start a cult it would be the most successful one because he's able to kind of pull on that traumatic experience that clark couldn't right like she she was part of the system that introduced that trauma more or less right like with her mother being a leader on the arc Um, And kind of coming from that history. Yeah, I think, like, Clark especially was able to, like, with working with people, like, see the consequences of certain potential things, whereas Bellamy Mm -hmm. wasn't. But you're right, like, Bellamy was able to connect initially, whereas I think Clark just, just had a really hard time connecting with people that she didn't know previously. I think that's because Bellamy really focuses on like the wants of the hundred and Mm -hmm. Clark focuses on the needs Mm -hmm. and like those are two very different but you know often needed types of leaders um but Bellamy kind of knows how to use his charisma to get what he wants and yeah I think he'd be a better cult leader but you know maybe in the first season or so he's pretty impulsive and incendiary so I think his cult would probably blow it pretty quickly yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But that's why they have Bellamy and Clark, because they're two opposites and you know, they have to play off each Makes other good TV. to combine to make the perfect leader. Exactly. <laughs> well, I wonder how much is gendered too, right? So like Clark obviously has a status from being on the arc, but they also Well, like they call her princess because of that status, but there's also like they don't they say that more to Clark than um Wells who who has similar status like they say it to him but it's more yeah. Clark that they kind of pick on um and so I think part of it too is that kind of like the the shrill woman figure that oh no and she's yeah. nitpicking you know mm-hmm. oh my gosh if Clark was a guy but you know the mm. same personality same situation they would never call him the same sort of they wouldn't treat him the same no. way I don't think no, I that don't. they do what Clark. I do appreciate though is that clearly the woman was the better leader um, which only goes to show that we need more women in power because they're less yeah. likely to resort to violence and aimlessly fighting. Anyway. <laughs> Feminism. <laughs> Finn was a really good leader, I think, but he was like more of a background mm-hmm. leader, which I also really appreciated um, because I would say even more so than Clark in the first season he was probably like the best leader in the hundred he was the perfect beta Um, yeah (laughs) and yeah it's just um so it also like gives value to the background leaders and that they also have value true very true so to summarize what we've covered in this episode We've discussed how religion functionally acts as a method of group cohesion and identity and the different ways that this is shown in the hundred in each of the different communities we identified. So that's just kind of like the main takeaway. We were looking at totems and um, even though these shared values weren't necessarily religious, they 
functioned as if they were religion in some cases. I was wondering, did you folks have any other takeaways? I mean, just that the hundred is definitely worth watching. Yeah. Uh, that we shouldn't start. <laughs> that we shouldn't start a nuclear war because mm -hmm. it's not pretty, and that we should, you know, appreciate the Earth and learn from our previous mistakes as settlers. I think those are all pretty good things. I think things. Uh, one thing I think is a an interesting takeaway from this is that we often assume that in order for religion to exist, it needs to have very key things, such as a deity um, or spiritual language or belief about the afterlife. Um, and I think this is a very good example um, among, there's, I mean, there's tons of examples, but maybe for those that are more ingrained in Western religion concepts, this is a very good example that you can still have some semblance of religion and religious community without those, you know, three things that I just said, um, especially when it comes to like group cohesion and how we function with each other um, and especially getting to maybe more so with the sky people than with uh, what we see with the 100 and the grounders in the first season. But even just having certain empathetic language and values uh, to guide you as well is quite important. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. For full transcripts of every episode, check out nearlynuminous.ca. There, you can also find links to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Have a topic you'd like us to talk about, or would you like to be a guest on a future episode? Reach out to us at nearlynuminous at gmail.com. That's spelled N-E-A-R-L-Y-N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S at gmail.com.